stand today with a lot of people speculating that the American empire is in decay and it's the Chinese who are taking over? Well, I would probably agree with the first part of this statement. Uh, I think that many American politologists, let's say, free thinkers, accept the fact that American dominance is in decay. They can't control the world to the same extent as they did right after the Second World War for many reasons. Just let me mention just one of them. Right, one of the sources of uh, present crisis is, uh, is the battle that is going on for energy resources. Back in the 60s, I certainly remember quite well the figure, the seven sisters, seven biggest Western oil companies, owned 85% of all the oil and gas fields and deposits. Today, they own only 15%. The rest has been nationalized by governments that actually realized that energy sources is one of the, is the blood link, blood source of the economy. So at this very moment, uh, the, 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 probably the linchpin of the American economic dominance of the world, that is the US dollar, is also in the decline. Now definitely it, has, it survives because it, it weakens the uh, European national uh, currency, that is Euro, but definitely the sphere of its influence is shrinking. Or once again, if you take the energy uh, markets, many countries are considering or have already started in selling and buying oil and gas using their national currencies. And one of the recent agreements between Saudi Arabia, the number one purveyor of oil, its agreement with China to trade in yuan or renminbi is one is a single of the things are changing. As for the second part of your statement that it will be the Chinese century, I would probably challenge this assumption for the reason that what is being, what Russia, for instance, is trying to advocate and is trying to show by being engaged in so many diplomatic efforts and putting together alternative associations of states, and that is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, that is BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, with so many countries actually eager to join it. It actually shows a different path of development of international relations. I believe that the next century will be a multipolar world order. It will be more fair, it will be more just, it will be more balanced, and that means it will be more secure and more sustainable. Please explain to us how did America build an empire through exploiting energy resources in Middle East and in the rest of the world? Well, it has a very, uh, very strong record, a long record of um, engaging in overseas, uh, overseas military operations for the sake of controlling the flow of energy resources. We can start from, I think, 1953 with the coup d'etat that brought down the government of Mossadegh in Iran. 
we can think about uh, punishing Saddam Hussein for invading uh, Kuwait. Uh, I remember seeing uh, a wonderful picture in, um, in the Australian newspaper, Sydney Morning Herald, uh, which, says, which said that Australians don't want to pay blood for oil. The thing is that, for instance, 10% of all the oil deposits in Kuwait were the property of British Petroleum. So once again, we see that uh, the dominance, to a great extent, of the United States was based on the ability to have cheap and sustainable flows of oil from the Middle East. The certain uh, very special relationship, for instance, between the United States and Saudi Arabia, for instance, that uh, was at the at the root of the collapse of the Soviet Union, when they actually manipulated the price of oil and forcing it to go down in order to cut the revenues in hard currency for the Soviet Union. It was also one of the operations that changed the global uh, the global uh, map. So, once again, the, the United States dollar, for instance, uh, which has been agreed to be the major um, benchmark for trading in oil uh, was now is, is, is under attack to an extent. One should also remember the aggression, unprovoked aggression, against Iraq in 2003. I subscribe to also to the view of some of my colleagues that one of the main reasons for that was that Saddam Hussein, who used to be one of the fierce pro-American dictators in the world. Actually, he was fighting a whole war against Iran in the interests of the United States. But what he did, what was wrong, when he actually declared his, that he is going to trade his oil, not for the US dollar, but for Euro. And that was the time when Washington actually has decided to take him out, take him out of the equation. The U.S. would not like to see even Europe superseding it. Are you saying that the U.S. believes only in unipolarity? Well, it's more or less evident, after all. Uh, the, the empire, which is the United States in essence, it doesn't have true allies. It can also only have vessels. Vessels, meaning... So Europe dependent. is a vessel? Europe is a vessel, and it's now it's coming to realize that because the whole sanction war against Europe, which has backfired and has brought many industries in Europe to the brink of collapse, to that extent, this sanction war, in fact, is one of the major tools of uh, leading to the deindustrialization of Europe. And, and when you know, and what has what one of the revelations that we actually face today? is when you take out what is called the manufacturing sector out of the national economy, everything collapses. Because then you have people that lose their jobs. And once they lose their jobs, they can't pay for all the services. And then the service sector comes down. And as we know in, in Europe and the United States, the service sector, the amount of money that you're circulating in this sector is including into the GDP into the gross domestic product. So what we see now probably is the start of the deindustrialization of Europe, which is happening, uh, shall we say, on 
and the insistence of the United States that claims that it is all aimed at punishing Russia for studying what I call the Russian irredenta, that means the reassemble of the Russian lands. So this is a way to punish Europe and to turn it to some way into a dependent, loose union of small, weak nations that will very much depend on, for instance, the industries and the even service sector from Europe migrating to the United States and in this way boosting the American economy. This is what's actually happening now. Why do you think Europe has been on the side of the US? Why do you think uh, NATO together fought so many wars together? And why do you think Europe would now break away from the US when they also have been beneficiaries of the US foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis energy in Middle East? I don't think that, the, that Europe, at least for now, will break this alliance with the United States. They can't just afford it. Because to a great extent, it's not only because they are truly dependent on the really still huge uh, uh, internal American market. They sell so many goods and luxury goods, like for instance, the luxury German cars there, so they do. And uh, also, one of the main reasons, I believe, that there's the, the, they're so tightly uh, linked to the United States through, I would say, the political and to some extent economic elites. The political elites in Europe, and I'd say that's, I'm not saying it because I, I heard of it, it's so many, it's, it's, it's an acceptable truth for really many intellectuals in Europe. Let's see, the quality of the political class and the political elites and the governments that have decayed at this moment, they are very much dependent. And some of them, well, we, well, I, we can subscribe in some instances to the conspiracy theories and some of them are just agents of influence what they're actually doing for instance in germany harms germany more than anybody else even harm than than russia why are they doing it it's a very big question mark and i believe that many people i would say the thinking strata will question it why this is happening why is it one of the Italian ministers, it was happening, I think, four months ago, uh, placed uh, a remark uh, in, uh, I think, in Facebook. He said, I believe that the sanctions were aimed at hurting Russia until I drove up to the gas station. So what is happening now is uh, probably the process of, of, first of all, of, of forceful disintegration of the European Union breaking up the European Union into small and weak states that will be very much dependent on, uh, on foreign superpower. To some extent, what we're seeing now probably, which is, I believe, I, I don't like it in fact. I actually was very much in favor of the European Union becoming, let's say, a formidable union of equal states, of where, where there is a sense of fairness, and the policy of fairness on everything well and it was quite an interesting integrational experience i was very much in favor of it despite the fact that it was a europe of different speeds that it was a very heterogeneous entity despite that and i think it was a very good experience i watched it closely 
and uh, actually approved of it very much. So I personally don't like Europe uh, coming under uh, the yoke or protectorate, you could call it either way, under the protectorate shield of the United States. Because for many reasons, Russia is both a European and a nation country. But if we take our political class and say, it's mostly European, if you take the cultural aspect. So we have so many, we do understand, to, not, we, or at least we do not misunderstand the Europeans, which is more, more important. So I really deplore the fact that Europe will further uh, diminish its sovereignty. I believe that this is, this is really an epic fail of the whole project launched by the French when they actually started the process of integration of European countries into the European Union. Explain to us uh, the energy crisis ever since uh, the Ukraine war started. We know that the energy prices have uh, gone over the roof. We also know that Germany is suffering. There is also the view that overall Europe is going to suffer this winter. What exactly is the situation now and what do you foresee for the energy sector globally? Well, to begin with, uh, the main reason for the energy crisis in Europe uh, is a major blunders committed by the European Commission and the European Parliament that approved its laws, which were, which were put in place to regulate the energy markets. The basic idea was behind the third energy package and the energy charter uh, that there must be no long-term just what long-term uh, agreements long-term contracts pegged on oil prices this is something for instance that Gazprom stick to all throughout these decades because for the reason that is that long-term contracts uh, make it predictable the production the supply and the, the sales moreover as you know gas is a very special uh, substance once you you first build for instance a drill a gas oil field or gas field only after you sell this gas because once you once you actually uh, start the production you should have a pipeline leading to the end consumers and building the, all this gas infrastructure is very costly you get the, the investment return it, it is measured in terms of decades so the uh, producer should have guarantees that there will be an end user that will buy its gas and be happy the European Commission decided that once, well, uh, this is allows, for instance, Gazprom uh, to have unproportional uh, income. But the thing is that we use the so-called Groningen formula. Groningen is one of the major gas or uh, gas fields in, in Holland, and it was the Dutch actually invented it. The price of gas is pegged on oil. That means neither the producer nor the buyer or the seller of the buyer cannot control it. It is dependent on a third commodity, on a, on a different commodity, on oil, which we believe was quite fair. 
this model was functional. Good. Well, the European Commission decided that if you uh, dismiss the long-term contracts and force the producer to sell its product, in this case its natural gas, on uh, the stock market, on, ex on, on commodity exchange, on hubs, gas hubs, the price was go down because different buyers will compete for it. It could have worked if, if there was an abundance of natural gas on the market. And obviously, who are actually the, pro the producers who can supply, who can afford, who can guarantee sustainable supply of natural gas? Norway, definitely, definitely. But it's the old gas fields and uh, the debits, so to say, they are declining. Ten years ago, I even heard one of the chief executive officers of Stad Oil saying that we can maintain the production of natural gas at this level probably for another 10 years but that's all the others it's the uh this is the gas and oil fields of the north sea they're also well mature you can't take more out of it groningen for instance the the dutch government decided to close it down because of the fear because of the earthquakes that that's the production has been accompanied by libya has been bombed and have been turned into a failure state with no more sustainable supplies. Alger, Algeria, they need their gas, they have a certain amount of gas for exports, but now they're using it more for internal needs. So but Libya was bombed precisely for this reason? It was just one of them. This one, I believe it was just one of them, in order to cut the Libyan gas and oil uh, from from Europe, from European consumers. Qatar, as we know, sells the number one seller of LNG, liquefied natural gas. You can sell some some of it, but once again, the European Commission, by try doing everything in order to lower the the prices for gas, I say they just was sending a certain signal to Qatar. Why would they sell their LNG to Europe while there is a premium market? or I would say premium markets in Asia, like China, South Korea, Japan, India. So, the whole model of trying to sell the natural gas on hubs might have worked if there was abundance of natural gas purveyors. But this is not just the case. And once the sanction war was launched by the European Commission against Gazprom, they actually cut the lifeline for their economy. Because once the, the long-term contracts were sort of cancelled, so the natural gas was now being sold on gas hubs, exchange. And actually, who actually rushed in? The speculators. That's the time, that's the golden age for them. They immediately pushed up the price up because there was they were short of supply but they were not short of consumers that were actually have that's why that's the major reason for it. the money that has that is now being accumulated by the sellers and the resellers of Russian gas is very huge and actually it all amounts to what I would say it's just more or less legalized swindlers operations but what that's the Europeans who are actually who are actually selling act, act, this gas 
they are making money out of it. So this is quite counterintuitive. Uh, we also thought that Russia is making a lot of money because of the rise in prices, energy prices. Very true, because uh, uh, if, for instance, Gazprom, uh, on existence of the European Commission, has changed its for price formula and has included it, uh, not certain amount that has been um, pegged on oil prices, but also uh, it is linked with prices on gas hubs. So it's much higher. So it's no longer long term, it's one spot, one off sometimes uh, sale to certain consumers. Definitely Gazprom and also the oil purveyors uh, of Russian companies, national oil companies, NOCs, they're also making money out of it. Where do you foresee this entire situation going? What do you think uh, will happen with Europe not really buying energy from Russia, but India, for example, China, for example, and other Asian countries are buying uh, oil and gas on discounted price from mm -hmm. Russia? Mm -hmm. Where do you think this will go? Well, the thing is, uh, it all amounts to trust. If there is no trust and confidence in your counterparts, especially if uh, they have actually decided, I mean, well, this time the Europeans have decided to go their own way and to switch their energy needs to the supplier of uh, American shale gas and shale oil. I think Russia will have no other choice but to accelerate what it's being called the pivot to Asia. We have already upped the supplies of oil to China. We have upped and we're planning a major uh, increase of supplies of oil through so called the power of Siberia 2 pipeline to China. As far as I've heard, India has increased sixfold its purchases of Russian oil, which is going by tankers. So, on the whole, once we build our additional infrastructure, which is, which is a very big issue, infrastructure linking the oil and gas fields, which is up north in Russia, uh, uh, linking them to the supply pipelines to China, for instance, then uh, Europe will be a second-rate buyer, by definition. Whether there will be a turnaround, whether they will make what Margaret Thatcher never did, a 180% round turn backwards, I don't know. Very much depends on how Europe survives the winter of discontent. And the way when they have, they really count the pros and cons, let's say, I would say, for instance, in March, April and May. So very much will depend how they will react to that, because this is the reality, the harsh reality, and which actually demands, and probably will demand, uh, rethinking at least, reconsideration of the previous policies. But by that time, according to the signals that which is coming from the Russian government, uh, it is going to create, to build up the energy infrastructure which it will be aimed to Asia. And that will mean not only new pipelines, probably, that will mean uh, the construction of uh, oil tankers 
and probably LNG tankers, which will deliver once again to Asia, which is, which is no big secret, and probably will remain the premium market. Do you think Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative is going to be helpful in this objective? I think yes, to a great extent still, although uh, with so many, well, with a number of European countries uh, not quite understanding the Chinese mentality, offending personally Xi Jinping and China in general, this uh, is a very short-sighted policy and China might react to that too. Although the One Belt uh, policy, for instance, one road, one road, One Belt policy and project it's not only linking China to European markets, it's also linking it to Asian markets and to the Middle East. And it might be actually helpful to quite a number of countries. Uh, well, for instance, it's, it's already being, it could be, uh, there will be interlinkage. There. For instance, recently, uh, Russia and Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, have agreed to accelerate the construction of the so-called North-South Corridor, which will mean delivering goods as from St. Petersburg through the system, either through railroads or it will also link through the system of rivers to the Caspian Sea, crossing the Caspian Sea from North to South, then um, loading it once again on railroad platforms, rail platforms, going to the Persian Gulf or just the Gulf and then through the Gulf the goods could be transferred to any part of Asia, to India in particular and to Southeast Asia, I've been further. Now that brings me to the question of war. Uh, President Putin has announced partial mobilization of troops and just before his announcement we also saw that Russia took a hit in Kharkiv region. What is the situation in Donbass? What is the situation of Russia militarily with Ukraine claiming that it has launched a massive uh, offensive against Russia? Well, definitely. One of the reasons that we're using, uh, shall we say, a very limited military contingent, which is a major problem, and it's not being compensated by, let's say, um, the uh, huge superiority in armaments. For instance, uh, the counteroffensive has been called by the Ukrainian forces, which actually led to for them pushing the Russian forces out of the whole Kharkiv region. One of the reasons why I saw this thing, because they had an eight-fold superiority in soldiers. Usually... Was this a Russia Russian intelligence failure? Did Russia not anticipate it? Probably we have a dissuasive wedge. Well, we didn't have probably. Well, I'm not a military expert, but probably we didn't have the logistical capacity to to provide more uh, human power, so to say, soldiers in the field. Because usually, as for what I read for the, uh, from other military experts, usually during the offensive, you have to have a superiority three to five fold. This time it was eight fold. So in some reason we just couldn't hold the positions. So right now, after the partial mobilization, uh, some of the, as I understand, um, capable, uh, experienced 
military contingents uh, will be free to come to the front line. This, the, the soldiers that will be mobilized right now will actually be mm, used to control the territories. They won't be sent on the front line. Uh, right now this is being done by military personnel which are more experienced, they are capable say, of actually fighting. So, but this is a this is a very short process. According to some of the forecasts, uh, the ability to balance the superiority of the Russian-Ukrainian forces, of the Russian-Ukrainian forces, will be achieved only in November, probably in December. So, at this very moment, the situation is very tense, and uh, as you know, for instance, the Russian-Ukrainian forces are still uh, shelling. Uh, not only the military uh, lines of the Russian army, but also, as you know, they're shelling cities, villages, and still killing people. So the situation is very, very tense. So what will it change after uh, there will be the results of the referendums in the four regions, which is expected probably by the 29th of September, I don't know. But there is just a feeling it could be. The U.S. is uh, helping Ukraine openly, Europe is helping Ukraine openly with arms and ammunition, with funds. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is essentially a U.S.-Russia war, given the fact that U.S. is actually out there, NATO is out there without declaring it officially, but they are persistently backing Ukraine in this war? Well, let's look at the facts. Uh, one of these successes of the Russian-Ukrainian army has been achieved due to the American intelligence data gathered through the satellites, American satellites. We have, well, it has been reported, we have uh, intelligence that, intelligence information that American and British mostly, and to some extent French uh, military commanders are taking actually the decisions in the headquarters, in the military headquarters in Kiev and Lvov. We also know that, for instance, some of the HIMARS um, operations, HIMARS strikes, are being uh, conducted uh, with the help of American military instructors. There are also information that were American and European mercenaries, and even sometimes who are wearing the NATO uniform, military uniform, who actually took part in the counter-offensive counter in the Kharkiv region. So, if you put together all these facts, also, like you have mentioned, that this is, they are being provided funds, they are sending armaments, ammunition, and not only that, all that sort. So, it is, I would say, a war between NATO and Russia. It is a war between NATO and Russia, or as we say, between war between Russia and the collective West. So, in this respect, the Russian-Ukrainian army of the Kiev regime is, I would say, similar to those two battalions of Gusanos, as they were called by the Cubans. They were sent during the U.S. administration under John Kennedy into the Bay of Pigs. They were mercenaries. The Russian-Ukrainian army 
is a mercenary army. And that's why NATO commanders are actually controlling it. They actually don't care how many of them die in the battlefield, which is, I would say, very much deplorable. This is a tragedy for the Russia and for the Russian world, because we, it is the case when Russians are fighting Russians. It is a tragedy. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. You're most welcome.